Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Time of Your Life, with a message titled, Be Careful How You Walk. So turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Donald Hall wrote the following. For weeks after my last operation for cancer, frail and without energy, sleeping 10 hours, I looked in my house at all the books I had not read and wept for my inability to read them. Or I looked at great books I had read too quickly in my eagerness, telling myself I would return to them later. There is never a later, but for most of my life I believed in later. The Roman philosopher Seneca said, We're always complaining that our days are few, and yet acting as though there would be no end of them. We're talking about time this week in a short series called The Time of Your Life. I'm speaking about this in the hope that we would live our lives wisely. And so we're talking about the passing of time, the anticipation of future time, and the meaning of time. I also think it appropriate to speak about what has been called the wasting of time. Of course, wasting time is exactly equivalent to wasting life. This is a short one-week series. It's dedicated to our use of time. And as we do, I'm looking at one very short passage of Scripture, Ephesians 5:15 to 17, which says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's our theme for all this week. From this text, I would like to draw two very important thoughts. Here's the first of them. If you're going to use time well, you're going to have to become observant. You'll have to watch time carefully. I remember years ago when my wife and I were on a very tight budget. We had small children, very little money. One day, Kathy told me of a conversation she had with a woman her age. The woman and her husband were very wealthy, and this woman wanted to know from Kathy, what's it like to live on a budget? This woman wanted to know what it was like to live your life and have to watch carefully what you spend and how you spend it. (laughs) Kathy told me at first she was stunned by the conversation and then that it was a fascinating conversation. She and I had never considered what it was like not to live without having to make money decisions. Budgeting was just life. So was setting priorities as to what was necessary and what was not. We would regularly go through how to spend money and how we plan to spend our money. And within all of that, we also talked about tithing and saving for the future. Yeah, money was tight. Look, we weren't poor. We just had to make sure that we were using money wisely. Because if we didn't, we would soon get into trouble. But this conversation with a woman who had never done that for a lifetime, that that was fascinating. So we talked about that. If we weren't on a strict budget, we'd probably never comparison shop. Wouldn't that be something? We wouldn't have to know the difference between needs and wants. We would never have to delay our gratification. We'd not have to learn the discipline of denying ourselves. We wouldn't watch our bank account nearly as closely as we did. We wouldn't save a certain amount every month for that rainy day fund. And we certainly wouldn't be anticipating the big future bills like car and house insurance and stuff like that. In fact, we came to the conclusion that by having more money, we would be paying less attention than we ever had to money. Indeed, we thought money would be right off the radar screen. 
What would that be like? See, that was a fascinating conversation. And whatever you think of our conversation, whether we were on the right track or on the wrong, I'm using it as an illustration comparing our awareness of our finances to the awareness we have of the passing of time. In essence, how we deal with time is the same as money. If you think time is in limited supply, or if you think it's the most precious commodity you have, you will pay very close attention to it. But if, on the other hand, you think the supply of time is endless, or at least if you think that you have more time available to you than you currently need to worry about, you'll not observe it or pay attention. You'll spend it without a second thought. It really is the same principle. In Ephesians 5.15, Paul begins with the verb look. And then not content to allow that verb to remain there by itself, Paul adds an adverb, look carefully. He's saying, be altogether diligent in your looking when you're walking through life. Paul's referring to how we use our time. The word look could also be translated as observe or take notice, pay attention, examine and contemplate. But what can it mean? Is Paul asking us to keep a detailed day timer in which we write down every second and see how we've used it, much like a person who's on a very tight budget? You know, that should be interesting if you think about it. You know, my father was like that with his money. After he passed away and I was going through some of his things, I found a book in which he kept a record of every penny that he had spent. What if we did that with every second of time? Look, I don't think that's what Paul is referring to. He has in mind something much more significant than that. If you look at the wider context of Ephesians 5.15, you'll see that Paul wants believers in Christ to observe the difference between the life they once had before they came to know Christ and the life that they now have now that they're in Christ. So, for instance, Ephesians 5, 8 to 12. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So it becomes clear what Paul has in mind. Don't let yourself simply slide into the behavioral patterns that once marked your way of life before you came to Christ. Be observant. Watch carefully. Are you finding as you use your time that the way that you use it is starting to resemble the way the children of darkness use their time? Is your use of time a marker that you're a Christian man or a Christian woman? Ephesus, like many of the cities in the Roman Empire, were not only religious and filled with temples, but a part of what happened in temples was overwhelmingly sensual. Sacred temple prostitutes made up part of the religious life of many people. There are those who believed and taught that sex with a temple prostitute was one of the highest spiritual experiences one could have. Of course, so many other things happened in temples. There was, of course, the worship of that temple deity, a god or a goddess, who was usually fickle and hard to appease. So life was thought to be fickle and filled with anxiety. Alongside of that, many of the ancient trade guilds had their meetings in these same temples in which they poured out sacrifices to various gods and goddesses, including a pledge of allegiance to Rome and to Caesar as Lord. Your business life intersected entirely with everything else. And I think Paul is hinting at that pattern. 
This was the normal life of the individual living in Ephesus. And so, for instance, in Ephesians 4.19, Paul mentions the life or the walk of the Gentiles. He says they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In the previous verse, he says that these things came about because they were alienated from the life of God. Then in Ephesians 5, 3-4, he mentions this word sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, which tends to be a blanket reference to every sexual practice outside of heterosexual marriage. In other words, sensuality has thousands of different forms. And that is the life you used to have. Paul is talking to the Ephesian Christians. Before you came to Christ, these were the patterns that marked your life. Think about that and think about where that life left you. How will you use the time in the future? And then surprisingly, in the same passage, he also mentions covetousness, meaning the inner spirit of envy that was also part of your life before you knew Christ. So why mention covetousness alongside of that list? I think Paul does it because sexual sin and envy go hand in hand. For one, the tenth command, you shall not covet, tells us that you are not to covet your neighbor's property and also not your neighbor's wife. That's because the life outside of Christ is never satisfied. Not satisfied in marriage. Not satisfied with one's spouse. That's because to the covetous person, there's always another potential spouse out there that's cuter and and brighter and kinder and more gracious and more sensitive. And, And so we're not satisfied in the marriage we have. Furthermore, we're not satisfied with our finances and we're not satisfied with living conditions because we've noticed there are others who have nicer dwelling places. And then we're not satisfied with our health and not satisfied with our job and not satisfied with the weather either. And by the way, where I live, that happens quite often. It rains a lot here. And then we're not satisfied with our relationships for our friends could be of a higher quality. And all of this covetousness leads to a deep abiding sense of resentment. I wish my situation were better than it is. Momentum is picking up as friends from across the country sign up for the 2022 Israel Experience. Join us from April 24th through May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, David walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's Royal Palace. Sail the Sea of Galilee and join in communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last Israel experience said, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful. The trip of a lifetime. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available online and to ensure an intimate experience, numbers are limited. So register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal said that all men are deeply unhappy. 
He said that he knew that because universally all men complain. And Paul writing to the Ephesians says that that's the life you had before you came to Christ. And then in the same passage here, remember, we're talking about Ephesians 5, 3 to 4. Paul speaks about crude talk or coarse joking. The resentful, out-of-control life finds its way into everyday language in what we say. And then Paul says, remember that? Contrast that to what you now have in Christ. And here he mentions only one thing. Actually, he has to mention only one thing because that one word summarizes the new life in Christ in comparison to the old. That word is thanksgiving. When you come out of darkness into light, your dissatisfaction in life has been replaced by gratefulness to a God who loved you and gave his son for you and cleansed you of your sin and adopted you into his family and watched over your life. And now crude language gets replaced with the language of worship and adoration and joy and of abundant thankfulness. Of course, the point is this. Remember how you used to spend your time back in the bad old days? How was that? Would you like to go back there? Of course not. Now, says Paul, consider how you're spending your time now. Are you able to see the comparison? When you pay attention to the marked contrast between the profound emptiness that once made up your days, you can compare that to the fullness of gratefulness to God that you now have. How does that look? Observe carefully. And don't you think that will make a difference in how you spend your time? For our purposes, we can seek to make application. And we might think about all the plans that people have. Plans, as you and I know, are plans as to how to use our future time. Many times our plans include improvements that we'd like to make. And of course, any plans that are positive, well, that's good and laudable. There's nothing wrong with that commitment to lose, you know, 15 pounds or to finish off your university degree or to get a job that pays well. We might have a goal of life improvement. We should seek to improve things in our lives that are harmful or that produce bad results. And all that's good. But think about how often a goal in life is driven by a deep spirit of dissatisfaction. That is, we seek to change life because we're unhappy. But once we've changed these things, we find that we've taken our unhappiness along with us. Yeah, for a time we're satisfied, and then that old spirit of bitterness or complaining or deeply ingrained sinful pattern, it just carries on. Life change without heart change is not the answer. If we carry a deeply discontented spirit, and this spirit of dissatisfaction drives our use of time, well, then all plans about using time wisely falls to the ground. That's the point. So many of us use our time in a spirit of poverty, out of deep unhappiness, rather than a rich rejoicing of the fullness that has been given to us in Christ. I ride a motorcycle, and one day I parked it next to a coffee shop on the beach, put my money into the meter and went in, got a coffee, took it outside on a beautiful summer day, sat in a chair outside the coffee shop with a book in hand. This was going to be a wonderful use of a wonderful day. Because one motorcycle doesn't take up the entire spot, another motorcycle soon pulled up and the guy asked me if he could share my stall and I simply nodded and he pulled in there beside me. Soon he was back out of the coffee shop with his own cup and he sat down beside me and we began to talk. I told him he had a nice bike, and he thanked me, and he said, on a day like this, I had to get it out. I got to make use of it, because after all, he said, life is short. 
I told him that he thought that since we have a limited amount of days, we should ride our motorcycles as much as we could before he died. And he nodded. He said, that's exactly right. And I said, here's what I think. I think we're going to live for eternity. And since that's so, we should use our life now to prepare for that. And whatever best prepares us for eternity is the best possible use of time. And we shouldn't waste it. In an instant, our conversation changed. You see, he and I had much to talk about. It was the difference between how one sees life and time outside of Christ and how one sees that same commodity in Christ. He was viewing time as the stuff that was slipping away. And in desperation, he had to make sure that he had enough motorcycle rides. And I saw time as an investment into eternity. Paul's not asking us to get out a day timer and keep track of the seconds. I mean, that would be silly. Rather, he's asking us to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. We've noticed that if we're going to use time well, we're going to have to become observant as to how that use is used in Christ. That now leads us to a second point. Notice Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Another way of saying that is, see your life as a journey. See, the idea of walking, which is how Paul portrays life, is repeated five times in the book of Ephesians. We can't look at all of them, but let me give you the first two times that walk is used in the book. The first time is in Ephesians 2, verse 2. Before believers knew Christ, says Paul, you were dead in trespasses in sins in which you once walked. It's a powerful image. I get the picture of all those zombie movies that are so popular, like the Night of the Walking Dead. Now, I actually don't go see those movies, but as to why people get so much of a kick out of seeing the Walking Dead shot or stabbed or having their heads cut off over and over again, well, that's beyond me. I mean, there's got to be something pathological about that. So if you're a psychology major, I would suggest that's worthy of a good paper. I mean, what inspires that fascination with death? I mean, sometimes I do wonder, I mean, what the people in Hollywood are really thinking when they write their plots, but I'm getting way off track. Let's get back to Paul's image of dead men walking. Now, of course, when we're outside of Christ, we're not zombies. We're not physically dead. Before we knew Christ, our bodies were very much alive. So was our intellect and our imagination and our ability to carry on relationships and our ability to love and hate and create and destroy. All of that was alive. We do well to remember that all people, believers and non-believers, were all created in the image of God as such, were endowed with worth and great potential, and we do celebrate this precious gift called life. But that's not what Paul has in mind. When he says we were dead, he means dead in sins and dead in our ability to cease our life of sin. We were unable to cease sinning and then dead in our ability to stop following Satan and this world, dead in our ability to love God and please God. That's how we were dead. There was a deadness inside of us before we knew Christ. Walking speaks of making progress. You see, as time went by, our attachment to the world and the flesh and the devil, well, it became more pronounced. We progressed in our rebellion to God. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there aren't kind and gracious and considerate elderly non-believers. Remember, we're speaking about dead in making progress towards God. That's the first time in Ephesians Paul used the term walk. Here's the second time. It's found in Ephesians 2.10. Here's the contrast for believers. 
For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are now progressing in the good works God has made for us, being more joyful, loving and kind, and good in service as we render it to our King. So in Ephesians 5, Paul says, observe carefully how you're making progress. Are you progressing in the things that are pleasing to God? Now then, what has all that got to do with our use of time? I want you to get a sense of the image Paul is giving us. Our life does not consist in a second-by-second inventory of how we have used each moment, as interesting and as helpful as that image might seem. Rather, it consists of a walk or a pilgrimage that is taking us somewhere. In other words, don't think of your life as a repetition of events. You know, the alarm rings at six, you go to the bathroom, you shave and you shower, or you eat breakfast and you brush your teeth and you get into the car and you commute to work or school and you get home and you have supper and you watch TV and you quickly read your Bible and you fall asleep and repeat the same formula four more days until the weekend begins. Don't think of it that way. Rather see life as a journey, a walk on the way to the celestial city. You're going somewhere and on the way, learn to make progress in the view of life that pleases God and fills your heart with profound gratefulness of what God has given you. Use your time to progress as a child of light. Learn the secrets of profound thanksgiving at all things and see God's hand always at work in you. Examine this matter with utmost clarity, for in a little while now, you will have walked through this earth and you will have set your foot on the shores of eternity. Be very careful then how you live. Make progress that leads to eternity. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, should we find some some confidence in the thought that everything we experience has meaning and purpose? Well, certainly as believers, we must. Now, you know, I know sometimes believers think about, you know, the the things that we've done that have wasted our time or the sins that still haunt us. Um, But even in those, I would say to you, if you have a repentant heart and you're ready to turn to the Lord, you should know that, uh, you know, this is what Romans 8, 28 promises us, that all things, even our own sins, work together for the good to those who love him. So allow Christ to redeem even your greatest sins. So be repentant, put your hope in him. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Time of Your Life, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, we're encouraging you to request Dr. John's series, The Time of Your Life, as our free gift to you. As you listen and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time we're given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. Studying the Bible makes a difference. One listener wrote, My prayer for Back to the Bible Canada, God willing and God permitting, is to concentrate all efforts to affirm believers and to speak to the young generation. The times we are living in demand it. As always, we're so grateful for your gifts that enable trustworthy Bible teaching to be shared day after day in your community across Canada and around the world. You sustain this ministry. To request the time of your life or make a gift to support Bible teaching, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
www.thepowerhour.ca.